The man of will breaks all boundaries. As above, so below. Magic of come to realize is a new way of seeing our own world. Something divine truly does exist. You're listening to the Culture Shock Podcast with your host, Dave Escuro. Happy Monday, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and today I'm joined by a really amazing guest. I'm a huge fan of animation and everything that comes along with it as a medium. It's one of those mediums that really offers the opportunity for folks to do some really imaginative artwork. And so my guest today is Molly Wright. You might also know her on social media as Wally Might. Uh, And we spent a lot of time talking about animation and her start and how she works both as an animator and a compositor and the difference between the two and some of the opportunities that this has provided her with being able to share her art to the world. I hope that you find it as fascinating as I did. I want to thank Molly so much for coming on and spending time talking about animation and art in general and sort of the, the business of online as well as magic, of course. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation. I was really happy to have it, and I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. So without further ado, my guest, Molly Wright, a.k.a. Wally Might. One of the reasons, it's funny that that, uh, that we sort of connected the way that we did, it, because I had seen your art on Twitter for a little while now. And I don't know if I told you this, but I'm actually a really big fan of animation. Um, I've always really liked it, but one of my buddies who who helped break me into the industry, he loves animation. I mean, he loves animation, and and sort of watching stuff with him, and and uh, he's even part of like a, a an animators club or guild or something here in Los Angeles. Oh yeah, they're big time. Yeah, they, they get like first looks at all mm-hmm. the animated features that come out and things of that nature. Sort of. Sp- Spending time with him has really even increased my appreciation of animation, and I've been lucky enough to work on a couple of projects uh, of, of varying animation skill. What was your what like? What got you into it? Like, were you just always a fan of animated things, or um, did you sort of happen upon it? I always find people who who are involved in film like what their path is because it's always a unique one. Well, it, yeah, it's definitely like always unique but I feel like something that we all have in common is that like at some point in our life when we were younger we watched something and Mm -hmm. it was just like an incredibly magical experience you know I used to um I used to watch so many cartoons and um it was funny because I I grew up in a really like catholic household Mm -hmm. um and things have gotten a lot better like you know with my mom and stuff being Catholic, because any Catholic knows that there's a lot, a lot of baggage that comes with that. Yep, I was so, always Catholic. <laughs> right, right. So like, I would watch shows like, um, it, it during my time, what was really hot was like Yu Gi Oh, like the like the card game playing, and mm-hmm. also Pokemon. And yep. there was kind of like an outrage for like, um, thinking that these shows were kind of like inherently demonic or whatever, or that really. Like, or that like the my mom and my mom wasn't the only one. It was like, you know, kind of a common thing. It's like, you know, that these shows are like evil or the devil's work or whatever, which was interesting because like my whole life drawing and creating has always been like a very like magical spiritual thing for me because I was mm-hmm. always drawing. I was already like I was a, I used to take like 
I would take like tin foil and draw on them. So it would create an imprint on the other side and I would hide it. And then I would pretend I found it like it's an ancient Egyptian tablet or something. That's super cool. (laughs) And it just, um, I was really lucky because I I was able to go to school for it. And That's, that's excellent. And it's just like, I was, I was like a terrible student, but I really, really cared about making things that I was really proud of. Mm-hmm. So even though I was a bad student, I made a lot of things that helped me, you know, get my first internship, which was at like a, which was actually at a film place called Animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to like see some do- how documentaries are. And then uh, I got another job as like a chief creative officer at a game place for a while, which really forced me to kick my butt into like <laughs> 20 millionth gear. Right. And then I was so lucky that one of my friends, um, I had met uh, I had met someone who had become a really good friend of mine. Um, they weren't really big on YouTube yet, but they really liked uh, my compositing because, like, that's kind of like what paid my bills is being a compositor. Okay. Which a lot of people don't know about, like, compositing. If they're, I mean, you probably clearly do, but it's like. But for those who might not know the difference between compositing and and say like animation, as people understand it. Yeah, like the difference is like, you know, I didn't even know what compositing was until I found out that that was like the most viable way for me to like take care of myself financially. Because mm-hmm. um, there's like not a lot of compositors because you don't hear about them and they're not like sexy sounding. Like I'm an right. animator or filmmaker sounds sexier, but compositing every time you watch animation or you even watch a film, especially film with like CG. Uh, which I got to see some CG pipelines. Those are nuts. Um, it, it Everything is put together, blended, and different things that you, you your eye doesn't see, but you things like different grains on different kinds of footage and like different color levels on different footage and like mixing things and putting things together and then like adding effects, which, you know, is like elemental stuff. You know, like moonlight, fire, bonfire, light, smoke, fog, all of that stuff. Um, It's like kind of like, you know, the energy of what you're watching. You know, Midnight Gospel is one of the most beautiful animations in the world. And I got to see some of the animation before Mm -hmm. compositing. And like those compositors did a lot. Well, it's crazy because, yeah, it feels like, um, you know, you you mentioned that it's stuff that you don't see, but you do see it when it's not done well. Right. It's, it's uh, compositing is what blends the animated aspect, you know, via the VFX, CGI or whatever into the environment. And the better done, the more seamless it feels. And in many ways, it feels like you're being asked to be almost like a, a secondary cinematographer um, in the, the way that you interact with the elements, like you mentioned, like lighting, for example, matching the lighting, blending it in. Um, these are the things that when, when, when I, when I broke in, for example, After Effects was huge, right? I don't know if people still use it or not. That's what I live in. I used okay. to do Nuke for a while, but yeah. But everyone had the same blood splatter. I don't know if you've ever seen like. Oh my God. Schlocky... And explosions. Yes. Explosions and blood splatter were like. Everyone used the same package, right? And you could always see it. And then, you know, it's, it's fine when you're doing a, a silly uh, zombie short or something. But when you see it in, 
you know, big studio films using the exact same, you know, effects package that anyone could at that point could even own at home. And this was years ago. Now I'm sure everyone has way better stuff. Um, Oh, they still but, use packages like YouTubers. I see. I see that like the same uh, like motion design with the blocks and the writing on them animations and like yeah. the transitions where you like go in and whatever. Yeah, I mean those packages are still they still get used, but yeah, they've gotten fancier. One of my really good buddies, uh, one of my closest friends, in fact, he he started in. Well, he actually started as a as a lighting guy as a as part of the lighting department. That's how I met him. We did this horrible, right. horrible film. It was like we shot it in 11 days. It was an action film with like Danny Trejo and Michael Bisping from the UFC. And um, we, it was just such a hard project to work on that. I remember at one point I walked outside. I was a, I was a, I was a glorified PA slash quasi coordinator at the time. And I remember seeing him and he just looked defeated. I just said, hey, buddy, like, I didn't, I didn't know him very well at that point. I mean, how well could you know anyone in 11 days? I said, do you need a hug or something? He's like, I would take one right now. <laughs> and so, like, that was the start of our friendship, right, over this really brutal film project. But he, uh, when I, prior to me meeting him, he worked for a while in animation um, or compositing, rather, for Troublemaker in Austin. He wow. worked on, I, I think he worked on... Um, Oh, what was the kids movie that Robert Rodriguez did with the stone, like the magical stone? Was it called Shorts or something like that? I don't recall now. But anyways, he he did that. And so he, he tried to explain to me some of compositing, uh, which mostly goes on my, over my head as a film producer. Like I have the most rudimentary of understanding of it, but that's it. And he would show me like node trees. And, oh, my uh, God. It, it just looks it just looks like the matrix to me and i i don't understand it but uh but i'm always amazed by those who do and can manipulate it and create this really extraordinary art through with using a, a sort of a, a digital uh toolkit it's so interesting because it, this isn't something like i wanted to draw cartoons and like make a cartoon show because that was just like all i knew was like possible Mm -hmm. But I, I like compositing was something I, I didn't want to do, but it was the only job available at the studio I was interning at. And we were taking uh, this was for some Jim Henson thing. It was um, I think uh, I think it was called Magnesium. No, it was called Magnesium at the time. It's called Ghostwriter mm -hmm. now. Oh, cool. And he and we would take live footage of like cats and then the CG guy would make like talking mouth for the cat and then mm -hmm. we had to blend the cg on top of the film and like yeah he the guy who taught me compositing he was one of the guys that used nuke with all the nodes and stuff and like it is so epic like at first i was like i never want to get involved with that and as i was getting involved with it i was like this is like powerful like this is like <laughs> powerful magic yeah yeah and it's interesting too because i've always held that art is magic and magic is art, um, especially with intention, right? I know that it, as the days pass on more and more, it's more difficult to find art that is art, but any creation has a magical element to it. And I think for the longest time, although, although I think this is changing now, for the longest time, I feel like folks in the art world kind of look down on digital artists as though it was somehow easy 
or easier. Um, but it's especially, absolutely not. Especially animation, because they associate yeah. it with like babies. But but uh, if you've ever watched the process, which obviously you have, it's not only learning to to draw with a different set of uh, tools, but it's almost like you have to learn a different language and culture before you can begin the art, right? Because the digital space and these digital programs, they feel like a completely different world to me anyway, as a layman, right? So I had imagined that before, like if, if you're good at drawing and then you want to get into like digital animation, you basically have to learn to speak in a completely different language. And oh then God. you can, then you can apply your skill. So it's almost, to me, it's almost harder in a way. You know, that first, that feeling you get when you open, a, you see a software and you're like, you see what people are producing with it. And you're like, I, I got, all right, I got to get in there. And it's like the second you open it, everything just becomes a blur and you're just like, <laughs> What are all these buttons? Where, yeah. where am I? I want my mommy. <laughs> I, I would say for anyone who's trying to grasp how difficult it is, imagine buying a desk from Ikea, okay? And you open the box when it gets to your house and it's a billion pieces <laughs> and all the directions are in Swedish. And to <laughs> me, that's kind of like if, 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 you, if you walked into it blindly – Right, like getting off your couch and opening an animation program, it kind of feels like that to me. There's something like I had this feeling a couple months ago in After Effects, where it was the first time I composited an entire project, and I didn't pause to think about um, where in the UI I needed to look for a particular thing. Like Mm -hmm. I just did it, and I just had this really triumphant feeling that it was like usually it's like. I, I'm stumbling when I'm first learning something, but it was my first time. It was like, I just walked down that path. And, That's amazing. You know, it felt, it's definitely rewarding though, because it's so difficult. Yeah. As is, as is anything, right? I remember I worked on a show, my first, well, I did an indie, I did an LGBT indie film when I first moved to LA. Cause I, I came back and forth from Texas to Los, uh, to Los Angeles for a couple of years um, I got to work on a stop motion show for Disney, which was a cool experience as a coordinator. Fancy. It was cool. It was, uh, we shot in, um, it was, it was 10 three minute episodes and it was about a, a sandwich. It was all stop motion sandwich. That was a hero, a hero sandwich, pun, pun, pun. And his, <laughs> um, his sidekick, which was a, a salad lad, that was his name. And they had to fight bad food, right? They had to fight, um, uh, sugar, you know, a, 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 a villainous that looks like a cotton candy, and she's trying to make put sugar on everything, and a, a robot that's a looks like a giant fryer, and of course he tries to fry everything, and that was the, sort of the gimmick, right? And it and, and it was really fun. It was like my fa- it's still to this day probably my favorite show to work on, uh, because everyone was so cool and so nerdy. Like all the animators were just like we would just sit and talk about like Green Lantern and stuff, like in between them doing their work. Um, that's one of my favorite things about this whole world. It's, it seems like it's filled with really cool people. Uh, and um, it sucks because Disney commissioned this show. And, and then again, I can't confirm this, but the rumors on the street were the reason why they opted to not continue the show was because the show advocated for eating healthy and not eating bad food, which is all you can buy when you go to Disneyland or Disney World. 
and there was a conflict of interest there. And so they decided not to promote that any further. That's hilarious. Uh, it's so Disney though, right? That is Allegedly. so Disney. That's a true Disney experience. Very, very much so. Um, and then the other thing I worked on that was animation style uh, was the Annoying Orange for Cartoon Network. Get out which, of here. Yeah, which was weird. That was like my first, pro- uh, well, again, I did the LGBTQ project as my first proper production managing job in Los Angeles, but um, that was a short shoot. And then very quickly thereafter, from the Disney project, um, the director of the Disney project was initially the production designer for this Cartoon Network show, and he recommended me. And so by that point, I was no longer a coordinator. I was a PM. And yeah, and it was cool because speaking of After Effects, we did the entire project through Adobe. Oh, character animator or something? Yeah, because... um, if the you're mouth? familiar with the YouTube show, yeah, it's it's just compositing eyes and a mouth, right? So the the and all the all the manipulation of the of the photorealistic gimmicks, right? All the, the the orange and the whatever world, we would shoot it like 360. We would shoot these items. Uh, so like our, I think our schedule was like Monday through Monday through Wednesday would be shooting the the assets for the episode. So. Um, whether it was an orange or whether it was a spaceship made out of a, a toilet seat or whatever it may be, right? Bedpan. We'd shoot all these elements in 360 and then we'd hand it off to the compositing team and, and through the Adobe and After Effects, they would manipulate, animate, composite the entirety of the show. And then Thursday and Friday, we would shoot a live action character and then they would comp, comp it all in together. Um, but it was a really fun and interesting process and this is when Adobe was starting to get a foothold in the industry, you know, because, of course, everyone had been in the world of um, Nuke and uh, um, Avid, right? And maybe to a lesser degree, Final Cut. But this is when Adobe was making their starting to make their big push to, which I think now a lot of industry use Adobe professionally. And now Final Cut's kind of like the prosumer product. It seems like CG pipelines tend to stick closer to Nuke. But yeah, mm-hmm. as far as like 2D animation and that kind of stuff, like I see After Effects everywhere. Like I'm, there's this really big show on YouTube called uh, uh, Hell of a Boss. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. And, I I, I, and I'm just looking at it. And I'm like, I know how they did that. <laughs> I know what their style that is. <laughs> Does that enhance? Because okay, for me as a filmmaker, like, does it enhance your ability to enjoy the project, or does it take a little bit of the magic away for it? You know that to me, art, the art side of things, never ever removes the magic from it. I'd say what has hurt the magic of observing things isn't so much the actual creation process, but like. Well, I mean, writing is part of the creative process, but I've been reading a lot about writing theory in the past like two years because I've been, mm-hmm. I just want to get better at writing. Um, and uh, when I see how certain people write certain things, I'm like, oh, okay, oh, okay, Blake Snyder, all right. <laughs> so I'd say that maybe hurt it a little bit, only because I'm like, oh, okay, this character, they're setting her up for us to hate them, but then we're going to like them. And then it happens. And I'm like, yeah. That's a uh, Blake Snyder. If I'm not, if I'm re- remembering correctly, that's a Save the Cat author. Save, correct. I love Save. Yeah, Save the Cat. Um, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, 
all the Robert McKee stuff. And of course, uh, the one guy from Rick and Morty who like made a different version of the hero's uh, journey. Oh, D- uh, Dan Harmon. I wish people would let go of that. I mean, I understand it's a good formula, but like, oh my God, stop writing like Dan Harmon. Let's <laughs> do something different. It's it's funny how those things happen because uh, when something becomes popular, of course, everyone jumps to it, which is which is understandable. I mean, I get it. When I when I first started breaking into filmmaking, um, the the sort of the show that was most popular at the time, not popular, but it was popular amongst indie people. So I'm just gonna prop this up so the fan doesn't go. It was popular amongst indie people, which was Grindhouse, right? And and being from Texas, like. I was all about Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. Those are huge influences on me. But every person who was making an indie movie at that time did the fake uh, distressing, you know, the the whole sort of scra- the uh, digital scratches on the film and the jump cuts and the the super the super exploitation schlock, and that lasted for a pretty good amount of time. And it feels like with with Dan Harmon having done he did Community, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. The community and, of course, Rick and Morty, it feels like that's the, the, the current soup du jour that everyone is trying to, like, capture so that they can replicate the same success that he's found. I mean, you see the same thing in mumble rap. It's interesting. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because I think on one hand, people want to be smart. And, and when you want to do something all on your own, it's like you want to believe that you just put your heart into it and it will do well. But like also you have to be kind of smart about what you're doing and like niches and aesthetics and that kind of stuff. But also at the same time, outside of business and people feeling like they need to make those kinds of creative choices for safer business moves i think it's also kind of a reflection of what's happening with like the unconscious like the collective unconscious in a way like Mm -hmm. why do we gravitate towards these certain things are we just making the same thing over and over again because we know it's going to sell and it's successful or like i mean i think i think that there could be more there you know we seem to be gravitating towards the same things and holding on to them for long periods of time like that I agree. I think there's, um, look, I, I think society trains us and is a reflection of us. And what I find looking around is that, and this is just in my lifetime, right? It feels like there's a, I'll just use food, for example, McDonald's. When I was growing up, you might get McDonald's as a treat, whatever, but no one thought it was like, no one would defend McDonald's or, or had the, uh, misconception that McDonald's was any sort of fine eating. But over time, you know, uh, you know, especially like in the last uh, maybe 20 years or so, it seems like people give a pass towards mass manufacturing that didn't exist before. And there, and, and whereas something along those lines would have been seen as like lowbrow. Now it feels like it's the opposite. Everyone is looking to mass produce something. And I think that um, you see that in movies with like in the sequels and world building of Marvel and DC and Harry Potter and things of that nature. And it feels like, you know, over the last 10, 12, 20 years, it feels like people are perfectly content to just try to manufacture, you know, use the mold and manufacture the same thing because their focus lies on success rather than, creation 
I don't know if that, I'm just. I don't really judge them for it though, because I went just looking at myself in my own like consumption habits. I hate using words like consumption and content because <laughs> it's like so shallow. But uh, you know, it, it's not. I'm not gonna be opening Criterion Channel every single night and right. watching some crazy shit that's gonna sometimes i want to sit down and go uh to some british baking show you know what i mean totally i love the so by the way I, if I you're talking about the great if you're talking about the great british bake-off i love that show i love that show too and i think that it's like you know just because something's kind of like easy viewing or like something we're kind of used to doesn't it's not like i don't really judge people because i at the end of the day you know i listen to mumble rap I I watch reality TV shows sometimes, not all of them, mm-hmm. but you know. Well, it's about balance, right? In the end, at the end of the day, and look, and I'm I'm probably guilty of it because I because I see a void in people taking an interest in more, in, let's say, in depth art shows, right, or or content, whatever you want to call it. I talk about that a lot, but I I don't want to come across saying like. Or even pretending that I don't indulge in in um, mindless entertainment. There's there's a place for that as well. I mean, there's a place for for rest and leisure. Um, but by the same token, for example, the reason why I love the Great British Bake Off is because I came to it through the Mighty Boosh, and the Mighty Boosh is a very weird surrealist comedy sketch show, and one of those performers is a host on the Great British Bake Off. So, uh, you know, you can, you can go both ways and I, I just that. think it's, I think it's important to, um, you know, I think it's important to strike balance with the, the things that we consume. Um, I know those are buzzwords that get overused, but I think they're applicable. No, I totally agree. I mean, I like to make the joke that it's like, um, like a palate cleanser, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we just watched a, a horror, the most terrifying mind-bending david lynch thing it's like okay now let's watch this reality show about people dressing up like monsters and going on dates you know like i would watch that show yeah i just oh my god i watched it in a night is is it a real show uh and it you have it's called um sexy beast it's like basically (laughs) like people get dressed up like furries or like special effects people and it's a reality show dating blind date show interesting I'm going to, I'm going to find that. That seems just because I like if I don't really like reality TV that much, but I do like, uh, um, I do like costumes and, and makeup effects work. So for no other reason, I may enjoy it for that purpose. Oh, that's cool. That stuff is hard, man. I'm bad with my hands, like sculpting, not for me. Right. But in a way you do, right. You do, you sculpt digitally. Um, Drawing is, I can do that. (laughs) I can be there for that. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess it's not too different. I guess the drawing, it's like I'm holding like a wand and I can put my faith in that wand. And I'm like, you do you, little Wacom pen. Let's do this. <laughs> but with sculpting, like, you know, your fingers are in there, you know? Yeah, true. But I, I would assume just like like anything, uh, it just it's just the time you commit to the craft, right? Well, I'm sure when you first start, I mean, maybe you start drawing at an earlier enough age that you weren't mindful of the difficulty of it as is generally the case with uh, when we do things when we're young, but I'm sure if you tackle drawing as an adult, you know, it might seem like a insurmountable mountain until you kind of start taking those first steps. I'm trying to rediscover that feeling in myself lately. Cause when I was, uh, you know, ages like 
8 to like, it tapered off around 11 or 12. I was so obsessed with drawing my Sonic OC and posting it <laughs> on DeviantArt and like drawing my friend's Sonic OCs that I would start drawing at like 5 p.m. and stop at like 8 a.m. And it just was not like affecting me physically. And I would hmm. wake up and I would just be so excited to draw my Sonic OC, you know, because it was just like part of this like connection with other people and also um, like imagining my my involvement with it like visually like as an artist and like being able to actually make that happen over time and make it like look better and like it's almost like because we're all in this digital space it made me feel like I'm more real in that digital space because I'm like creating this visual thing connected to myself so like I kind of like fell off because then I turned into a teenager and, you know, and, I, and I'm really happy that I kind of like I'd probably be a crazy good artist now if I had <laughs> never like lived a life. But I kind of stopped drawing and then I, you know, got into like acid and mushrooms and all that stuff and mm -hmm. like kind of lived life for a couple of years. And um, and then the business side of art is kind of like, oh, you know, Mondays, am I right? But then right. like lately I'm rediscovering kind of like that like love inside of myself where mm -hmm. it's just like the love of what's happening is so strong that it's not about like I need to sit down and draw it's like I want to will this thing into existing so bad like we're so close yes absolutely um there's a couple of things that you said that resonated deeply with me um firstly I find that urge to rediscover the passion I find that something I, I, I struggle to find all the time because I've been doing filmmaking for 13 years now. And when I started, it was just me and my brother-in-law and a little crappy camera and us making little schlocky short films for 24 and 48 hour film festivals. And there's freedom in that. You know, I used to stay up all night, same as you're talking about now, you know, I'd write this dopey script and um, edit it when we were done shooting and, find free samples of music to score it and, and Foley it and all this. I used to, you know, ev almost everything by myself. And then you start to do it as a living and then you start to make money doing it. And then you start uh, taking jobs because they pay well or because uh, you lust wanna, of result. Yeah. You want to keep working, whatever it may be. And look, and again, there's no, uh, I'm not down on that. This is how I make a living. This is how I have a home to live in and how I support my wife and things of that nature. But it's easy to lose the passion that you once had when there wasn't a, a business aspect attached to it, which is why I've said this before on the podcast for podcasting and for blogging and, and photography and other stuff I do, I don't ever charge for it and I don't make money off of it. And I kind of like that freedom because I'm, I could just do whatever I want with it. You know, there's no responsibility other than to make sure that I, in, in the case of my podcast, make sure that I amplify my guests and, and get their story out. But beyond that, I'm not beholden to anyone but myself. But doesn't a small little, little, doesn't a little, little tiny, tiny part of you kind of hope that like, or think that it might be cool if like, this is the only thing you had to do? Sometimes I think that. Sometimes I think that. Um, but I don't know because if I, I mean, look, there's a part of me that would, uh, it, let me put it this way. If I 
were, I could imagine a world in which I'm so independently wealthy. Let's say I win the lottery and all I was able to do with my time is do magic and my podcast and blog and photography and make art house short films. That would be amazing. But, I love art house short films. Yeah, I, I love I love the medium of short films. I feel like it's kind of gotten a bad rap over the years as being like a waste of money. But, you know, again, sometimes the creation is the value in and of itself. Um, but like, for example, like, is there a world in which I imagine that podcasting is a business? Yeah, probably. But then it's like filmmaking, right? It, it will be a business. And and um, I haven't lost my love for filmmaking. But there, like I said, like you mentioned, like I always have to struggle to reconnect to that part of me that would have gladly done it for free. And, um, and I think that the part of me that's excited about podcasting is the part of me that doesn't have to have that business aspect of it. You know, it can, it still has maintained just this thing I do for fun. Right. And I don't know if I want to lose that, you know, I wouldn't judge anyone for wanting to make money off it because it's better than working at Walmart, but there's a good and a bad that comes with it. And you have to, if you do choose to make money from it, you got to constantly find ways to go back to that part of you that just loved it for the sake of loving it. Do you know when you feel that feeling? Like, does is it like something that is happening for a duration of time? Or is it like sparks of light in a light bulb? Or has it been a while? Uh, the, the, the feeling of loving it for the sake of loving it? Or the feelings yeah. of... Oh. Like, it's just like that intense feeling like in your heart and you're just like really excited. You, you know, uh, when things, the, the first day of filming, anything I shoot for the first time, the first day of filming often feels that way. It's like, oh, fuck, I just love it. I love the smell of production in the morning. You know, I love the uh, everything about like in those moments. I really love it. I love being on set. I love that. But that that feeling wanes. And and I'll tell you, honestly, and I'm sure you experience this to some degree as well. It's interacting with other people that that tends to wane the feeling. Really? <laughs> you know, but, yeah, because the business. But don't you of, think other people can kind of amplify it also? Yes, sometimes. 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 When, you, when you work with the right people. Right. You know, you know, oh, I, I've been forced to work in a, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and I'm I'm a film I'm a I'm the line producer on film. So I'm like set daddy and everyone's problems come to me and and everyone's you know people tend to have a fuck production mentality and that stuff wanes on you. You know, that stuff sucks. And it's just tired of dealing with people's griping and entitlement and things of that nature. But conversely, when I have, when especially crew that I know I like already, that I know are professionals and like are also have that passion, when you surround yourself with the right people, it's amazing. I love so, that feeling. You know, you got again, it's all balanced stuff. You know, it's all like it's 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 the environment that you're able to create and dictates your passion level a lot of times. I, I find. Uh, quarantine was like I, I've always been really. I, I mean, maybe outwardly, not inwardly, but at least outwardly. I've before quarantine, I was always like a a social butterfly. Mm-hmm. So I've always been able to, and I, I also, I mean, on a darker note, a pretty good schmoozer. Um, <laughs> That's I an important mo- quality in Hollywood. I should have moved to LA. I should have. Uh, my boyfriend actually moved here instead of me moving there. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm. A, but my point is, uh, I was able to surround myself with people 
on both ends of the spectrum um in a studio you're gonna get that but quarantine's been really good for me as far as like uh i was we were we were all forced to work from home and then meat canyon picked up and then not only meat canyon but like this other guy like these communities started to form and become Mm -hmm. these like these animation communities Mm -hmm. um on like discord and like working with each other on films and hiring each other and it's become like a really strong circle so like like whenever i'm about to work on like a monster lab or one of mccain's videos or Mm -hmm. uh, someone from the other gang hits me up it feels like let's go gang we're doing this together like we are riding into battle together that's awesome. That's an awesome feeling. That that's and and I can see why it's easy to maintain the excitement because that's those are the kind of people that you want to be surrounded with, you know, people who are passionate about what they're doing and they're doing it for the love of it. How did you get connected with Monster Lab and uh, Meat Canyon? Uh, he was a fr- uh, the guy who owns it, Hunter Hunter Hancock. We were friends before he um, bef- he had like uh, thirty thousand subscribers or something. Okay. Um, and, and I know, and I didn't even know how many, like, I didn't even know about his YouTube channel. And at the time I was working at a place that, uh, was not fun to work at. <laughs> um, it was bad, but I was like the creative, uh, the chief creative officer there. So I was doing so much. I was trying to like get the animators to do most of the animation. I was like just doing lighting and all kinds of stuff and compositing everything and organizing everything and directing and he saw uh he saw some of my work and he was mainly like a flash animator do you do you remember kind of like the old school flash animation Mm -hmm. style people still do it it's 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 kind of known for its kind of like flatness you know i mean Mm -hmm. sometimes you got someone who's like it's like a fake anime fight scene or something and it's a little bit more dynamic but it's kind of known for its signature flatness. So he just wanted to, he was like, well, let's just, you want to do an experiment? Like, let me just hire you as an experiment and we'll just see where this goes. Right. So I did like, he had like a McDonald's video called over the golden arches for like the plot is basically that like Ronald McDonald is like tricking you into like, he drugs you so that like he can feed you to grimace or whatever. (laughs) And I did, like, a lot of volumetric lighting, like, really intense volumetric lighting and, like, fog. And, like, it just – it felt so fun. It was, like – it felt like I was, a like, a neighboring wizard in another dimension. And he was, like, hey, you mind coming over here and, like, fixing up the place a little bit? And, like, there had already been all this incredible animation that is, like, way past my level of, you mm-hmm. know, animation level and all these cool, amazing backgrounds from, like – incredible comic book artists that did the backgrounds and i i got to like i felt like a wizard and i was like summoning the elements into the video you know <laughs> like lighting everything and like i'm making fire and like all and like make making the viewer trip out after they drink the water and <clears throat> and then after he did that it, i guess like it just like got really well it got received really well so he just mm-hmm. like I was on every video from that point on, and then it was like, boom, now he has 3 million subscribers. It's been like, you know, a year and a half, two years. And he was well, only I, at like 30,000. Like, 
Wow. Yeah, and I'm I'm like I put I put the just beyond the golden arches on in the background here. And the lighting work from all the window, the light coming in from the different windows, um, the shadow effect. I mean, it's it the art in and of itself is already somewhat surrealist, but it feels like the added elements of depth and light, especially on this video, are uh, really add an element of eeriness to it in a way. It's 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 almost um, I don't it's not quite noir, but it's it's real harsh shadow and light which adds to the sort of creepiness of of the video he's an incredible writer he does a lot of like horror and like a lot of like cosmic horror as well mm -hmm. um and even though people come to his videos they're like lol omg childhood ruin because he's using ip <laughs> that is like associated with children or childhood sure. he does like to put these like really incredible parallels and metaphors into his videos and like working on them like i've just been so excited to work on them that it just doesn't feel like i've worked on them it's like hey what's going on this week so that's just been like a really healthy strong experience for me and then he he was like okay he made the kickstarter for monster lab which is his show which mm -hmm. the fifth episode is that there's gonna be eight episodes total uh dispersed throughout this whole year and that was like my first time compositing something that was like 12 minutes long. And at first I was like, oh, shoot. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was like, I can't do this. And it kind of broke me in into a way where now even that is like just super fun. Like, like I'm just going in there and doing the thing and not like struggling so much. Right, right. What I would imagine strengthening your ability to composite would then also strengthen your overall illustration abilities because you can you can go beyond just your 2D drawing and you know that you could independently create something with true depth and added elements that maybe you might not have had before you really sharpened your compositing skills. It's so funny because it's so funny you say that because you know, even though you're it doesn't matter what part of the process you're in, it's like kind of like your essence or whatever is getting mixed up into the arts essence and because you're staring at things really hard and you're working on things like I was scared that uh because there was like a long period where I wasn't drawing anymore because I was mm -hmm. just so busy with that <clears throat> I was scared that I had gone rusty and if I tried to draw again it would be really bad and I drew something and it was better Mm. than how I was drawing like because I hadn't drawn for like three months at that point which is like the longest period I've gone my whole life and it was just like oh wow like I got this and absolutely compositing there's also like a lot of like camera movement but also sometimes you're being asked to like animate things in their in their own way and then there of course there's like a lot of like motion design which is like all the for anyone listening it's like the stuff you see on your screen and on commercials mm -hmm. um that when i went in and now i'm working on my own independent films and i'm also getting i'm i was hired to i'm working on a like a 11 minute jazz film for someone That's right awesome. now i it's so fun that like compositing like makes animation easier because like i'm able to like move yeah you, know, you know your camera movements you can do a, get a lot done right. with that those right so it exactly. has it has been good for me i thought it was i thought it was gonna make me rusty but you're totally right like 
it's just been so good for me. And I never, and this is something I would have never have gotten into. I mean, I always liked effects, but I'm so happy that like, this was like one of those things where you think something went wrong in your life. And then it turns out that like, it's the thing that like, is the thing you needed. Well, and you've, I think you've brought up multiple times where obviously magic plays a role in your art creation and uh, tapping into that energy, in my opinion, at least will continuously provide new elements for you to play with. Uh, if, if, if that's sort of driving your, your artistry. And so, you know, something, like you said, something that you didn't think inherently it might've just been a thing to make money for a while or whatever it may be has actually increased your ability to create your own art. Absolutely. Like I never really cared about like divination or scrying or doing like path working has always been like what I'm mo most fascinated by like the mm -hmm. idea of it. And like, you know, like the idea of initiation, not the kind where they put a bag over your head and drive <laughs> you to a random place. And then you have to say some weird stuff naked, but you know, the kind where it's interesting, like my whole life, uh, there were things that I saw and as I like progressed throughout my life and I, you know, everything that I work on, it, even if, even if the person who hired me doesn't know this, it's part of my great work. Mm -hmm. like even if they don't know it I'm like oh we're doing this right. and there are things that I've seen before that like as I see more things it just all seems to connect and as things begin to connect for me I find creating and like not just in the artistic sense but like my life is just like more stable calm peaceful and like happy and like I guess productive yeah Absolutely. I mean, I have definitely found that to be the case as I started my foray into ceremonial magic. I, I found very much the same results. Uh, for me, it was, you know, dabbling off and on in different spiritual practices or you know, a couple of traditions here and there without any real guidance kind of was, was the way I was living for a great number of years. But when the pandemic hit, for me, that that sort of forced time to myself really helped open the doors to a pathway that again to your point has brought more perspective into my life and calmness and success and prosperity and it's not like i'm i mean i am actively asking for those things in the sort of broadest terms like as the universe dictates but uh it's not like i'm specifically asking to make a bunch of money or to you know, I just I just want my world to be better uh, in accordance to divine. And it, it presents itself that way over and over and over and over again, no matter how much I might doubt it in that moment. You know, some just a, a, a week ago, I was like, oh, fuck, who am I going to put on as a guest? And then in quick succession, I had like four people <laughs> to the point where I'm like, OK, I got to schedule everyone out because um and really interesting people, yourself included, you know, and so it, it does provide in that way uh, when you when you allow it to be part of your process. For me, ceremonial magic is like this uncle that like I never met, but mm -hmm. like his wife, like my aunt, like continued like I to tell him everything about my life. So that when we met, like he knew everything about me and I mm. didn't know him yet. It was so crazy because, 
you know, I remember being in high school and like eating acid and going in the woods, being a total rebel. Um, <laughs> and I remember, I remember there were things that I, I hallucinated mm-hmm. and I saw and I felt. And like when I, when, uh, you know, someone who became my teacher started showing me ceremonial magic. And they started explaining stuff. And I was like, oh, that's called Mount Kuth. I know what that is. You know? Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, that's just the moon? I know that. And it, it was kind of interesting because as I was like looking through these paths and stuff, it's like, I already know what this stuff is. You guys put names to it? I mean, not completely. I mean, over time, after it was only like a little, it was only a little bit, not a lot of bit. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll commit to this system for a little bit because I was researching a lot about voodoo at the time as well because of my Mm -hmm. my grandma or whatever but you know on my dad's side of the family they you know i just think that i'm probably not the first one in my family to uh that's all i'll say to kind of look into this stuff that mm -hmm. yeah i mean i mean i had a i had a really interesting grandpa that i never got to meet he died when my dad was 10 but I just kind of have the feeling, like, especially when I started reading about ceremonial magic, that, like, okay, I'm not the first person in my family to read into this kind of stuff. Because, like, it's just, it made too much sense too fast. Like, I remember the first time I opened up, like, Israel the Regardi, I'm sorry if I said that weird. He's not around. (laughs) Is he? I don't know. But when I was... Well, I was like, I remember it was like the first time I opened up Golden Dawn to like a random page and like I started reading something and it was just like tunnel vision, you know, I was like, all right, all right. Like I try not to like identify as like anything in particular. I, I think all mm-hmm. these systems have something really fascinating to to offer as far as mm-hmm. like mechanically. And, uh, you know, and I try to work that into everything I do, whether my client knows it or not. Well, and I, I think it shows whether or not they're conscious of it or not, whether or not you publicly promote that or not, it stands out for, for a reason. And it's interesting because, uh, I, and because I was raised Catholic, I, I always sort of find this connection that Catholicism for the, the very valid criticisms that you can certainly levy against it. And there are many, um, has the most magical made- one. It is right. It absolutely is. I was just talking about this. I think I, I think I might have talked about it on the last podcast. But uh, I went to an Anglican church recently, which I haven't been to mass in a decade or more. Um, and I, I'm certainly not a Christian by by name or faith, but I wanted to experience it from a magical from a from a magical perspective. And it absolutely has an egregore attached to it. There is Hell absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, necromancy and ritual and and one of my friends even argues that the Eucharist is a form of sex magic. I find that all that stuff fascinating. And and when I went, you know, it's a conjoining of of two things. But um, right, right, right. That makes sense. But when I when I went into this mass, I I've never seen auras on people. That's just not a thing that I've done or come to have that ability yet. But I saw two people and I very distinctly saw an aura around them without wow. trying. Yeah. And then um, I would see crazy colors of light in different parts of the mass, like mostly red. Um, there was even, yeah, even even the giant, you know, there's, there's a giant Jesus and a cross, what have you in the middle. 
And then the pattern in the wall, again, maybe I'm maybe I'm reaching, but I oh saw God. a sort of tree of life up there. It was just it was just crazy to just experience in a different way. So whether and then of course looking back at my own family, looking at some of the things we did, like you know, the ojo, for example, in, in Hispanic culture is a thing that we talk about rubbing an egg on someone's head to get rid of it. Or like when someone's ill, cracking an egg underneath, like there's obviously some natural magic that maintained, even though it had mostly been pushed out once people converted to Catholicism. You're um, saying so many things right now that are like, oh my God, keep going. Right. Sorry. No, I just think, so I think that especially I find it truthful with people who either were raised Catholic or have a family connection to, to Catholicism that that magic found a way to maintain itself, whether or not they call it magic or not. And, and nearly, although not everyone, but nearly everyone I know who has a strong interest in specifically ceremonial magic tends to come from a background that is Catholic or Anglican or something along those lines. Um, because... Well, it's very like mathematical and like mm -hmm. not mathematical but like uh operation oriented mm -hmm. like very specific things you say and then you stand up and then you sit down and then you kneel then you sit down then you stand yeah i mean it's oh been like i said it's been easily 10 years or more since i'd gone to a mass and i i could i knew everything without i knew exactly what we were about to do before we did it like that all that muscle memory just comes flooding right back to you uh, it's the it's mystery of faith. <laughs> <laughs> My mom always tells this story about when I was a really, really small toddler baby type of situation that one time in mass when they were, um, uh, I'm having a brain fart when they make the Eucharist legit, uh -huh, um, yep. consecrate it. But when they, in the middle of the consecration and then they hit the bell and they have a moment of silence or whatever, um, mom always tells the story where after they did that as a baby, I go, he's here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you saw him. Maybe you saw that Christ energy. I know? saw something because we had like these weird zigzag David Lynch, but it was like all like made of wood, kind of old shitty, like 70s vinyl behind mm. the old church at that time. I mean, I know they've changed it. I haven't been there, though. And I remember, like, I had hallucinations. It sounds like I had similar hallucinations as you did, but I wasn't – I didn't know what I was looking at. And also right. it was in the ceiling because I remember there were chandeliers – because there were, like – there was a main row of seats that you sit in and then two side ones. And then there were, like, two rows of chandeliers that went all the way down. And I remember seeing something kind of when I was a really little kid. I mean, I usually just chalk this up to imagination, but it kind of looked like – tendrils almost coming mm. up to the front of the church interesting I, I, baby, I, though. I, I find that so fascinating well and look maybe if nothing else it's an indication of your artistic vision at an early age right i think people who are able to imagine at a young age tend to go on to be artists um it's always kind of sad to me when i see people who have lost the enchantment of life and they they can no longer and it gets beat out of you you know it's not their fault but um, as young, and I have, I have like a, a young niece and nephew and to watch them still be in that stage where everything is magic. Everything is, is, uh, a fairy tale. Everything is, is engaging to them. And I, I just imagine that through, if you could look through their eyes, the world would look 
in some ways, I don't want to overuse the term magical, but it would, but that, but also maybe frightening because you would see things like tendrils and, and other crazy stuff that maybe gets unlocked when you do an acid trip or a mushroom trip. It's that, it's that heightened sense of seeing the, the, the mysteries of the world that get blocked out of our, our, our mind's eye as we get older. You know, I'm, even though it's probably bestowed upon both of us, um, a certain level of trauma. I mm. am actually on some level very grateful for, you know, I like, and my mom just encouraged it so much. Like we had honeysuckle bushes mm. and she would like, you know, pretend that there were fairies in them. <laughs> and like, I had this tree in the backyard that was like literally my best friend. That's like awesome. we would, this oak tree, we were best friends. Like I, like it was creepy. Like, I remember going up to this tree and just like talking to it like a, a like I was a it was a person. My uh, my brother and sister are like 12 years older than me, 12 plus years. So, you know, they were more 90s kids. So, yeah. my I was lucky to have kind of older parents that like you know, I wasn't on an iPad or whatever. Like I was like making mud pies and shit. I, I think that stuff's important. And again, I, I oftentimes fall into the trappings of old man yelling at the cloud because I, I also was a, a 90s teen. I was an 80s child. And so it's easy for me to sort of uh, come off like a, a anti-technology. And I'm not, but I do think there's importance to connecting with nature. And, and we see it nowadays. You know, people get too riled up on their internet and they, you know, people will tell them to go touch grass. It's kind of a backhanded insult. But really and truthfully, there is something to be said for connecting with nature. And I think it's awesome that your best friend growing up was an oak tree. That's cool to me, you know, and I and I no doubt is it is a direct has a direct correlation to you then pursuing a career as an artist. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know, because looking back on it, I don't know how much of it was just me being a child, but like, yeah, the magician side of me low key thinks that like yeah, I was just exposed to like so much like everything magic fairies mud gnomes all of it trees mushrooms my house that i was raised in mm -hmm. was a mushroom farm before really? my parents bought it um i mean the neighborhood became a suburb by mm -hmm. the time it had been refurbished and or whatever into a house but I remember just seeing the mushrooms and they would grow new mushroom circles every year and get bigger and it was just like yeah, just like at really wild. And it's funny because like some of that stuff kind of like went dormant mm -hmm. as I was getting older. And, you know, I, I would never tell people to do drugs because that's like bad and whatever. But like but I if did, you want once, to do drugs, who cares? I, I did. Once I started eating mushrooms and like I tried, you know, DMT, you know, it's like acid. It was like it wasn't like I was Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole. It was like my eyes used to be open and they were shut for a while and they were just reopened. And it was like, oh, I remember you. Mm -hmm. That's that's amazing, actually. I've never I've never experimented with psychedelics. Uh, I always kind of was scared of them. I'm on the, I'm I'm I've dealt with anxiety my whole life. And I think part of my own anxiety has made me feel like I'm a little too uptight to deal with psychedelics. But in the last couple of years in particular, I really embrace the use of cannabis usage regularly, nightly, sometimes with my, yeah, sometimes with my ritual, sometimes without. 
Um, and it has made, a, a, I mean, I'm going to start sounding like a, like a typical pothead now, but like it really made a profound impact on my life. You know, I only get, I only get high in the evening, but the effects of that stay with me all day long far more calming, far more of an appreciation for things like silly stuff. Like you remember that old video of the guy who was clearly stoned out of his mind and he saw the two rainbows. Oh, two. What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah. That guy, you know what? I kind of have a little bit of that energy with me all the time. Now the other day I was, I don't know what I was doing and I saw a butterfly and I just stopped for like 10 minutes to watch this butterfly. That's what it's all about. Yeah. It was so cool. And I was just like, wow, how lucky am I right now? to have happened to have been in this space to watch this really man, majestic being just going about its day. And I, and I know people are going to roll their eyes back fucking hippie, but fine. I mean, look, it's better than being angry at like, traffic there's probably or... more you could say right now that you're probably reframing from because it's like, it's very, inti- it is intimate, you know, like, yeah, absolutely. It's- like it used to be the world used to kind of be scary for me but yeah now mm-hmm. i'm at the point where i can like i have a nice fire escape i like to hang out on oh, and cool. that, whenever i'm on it i feel like you know like i'll see the clouds or some birds and they're, they'll be like you're doing a great job ollie keep it up you know what i mean <laughs> like it's it is beautiful it is it is and and frankly speaking i think that there is uh, and i think this is part of the way we've built our own society with its insistence on rugged individualism and and it's de-emphasizing of community but it feels like people really want everyone to cling on to trauma and anger and and if you're not upset at all times and you don't care and i don't think that's true i think that you could be mindful of the of the dangers or the horrors of the world but i think you can also at the same time and in fact i would argue that it's imperative that you should maintain some enchantment to life. My, my buddy said that in, I think the first episode of this podcast, and I've, it's a term I use all the time now, because once he said it, it was like, yes, that's it. That's it. That's the thing that we have to hold on to, because otherwise, fucking life is hard. It's very, very hard. And if you don't have those moments where you stop and look at clouds or a tree or whatever it may be, whatever, it doesn't have to be nature also. It could be urban as well. You could see right, building. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like my the building I live in, it's a 250-year-old building. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like it feels like a person, you know? Yeah, I remember uh, someone I have a, a lot of respect for, Damien Eccles, mentioned, I don't remember if it was on a, on a That's pod, so funny. Or... I'm going to interrupt you because no, he, said, he said in New York City, he yes. felt like certain neighborhoods had spirits residing over them in the subway. And yes. I was actually listening to his audiobook. And mm. he was describing that while I was driving on my way to New York's city to visit my sister. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. And it's funny too because um, sometimes I dabble in photography, and I find and I've shot people before, um, but I find that what I like the most is urban photography. You know, especially older buildings or plots of land. Like sometimes here in Los Angeles, certain neighborhoods will have like community gardens. Um, Things that have been around for a while always seem to have a presence about them. And I like to capture that if I can. And uh, again, kind of subconsciously doing that, just what I happen to be drawn towards. And when he talked about that, when he was talking about New York and certain neighborhoods and even trains and subways, it clicked with for me as well. I was like, oh, that's it. That's why. That's why I like this stuff. That's why it's so fascinating to me. 
You know? In Shinto beliefs, anything older than 100 years is automatically like a god. Like That's... in the in their definition of like what a god is, like in the spirit realm, it is like a person that deserves respect. Wow. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this house that I moved into that I'm renting, I lived in an apartment in Los Angeles for nearly a decade. And um, we found this house after doing some sigil magic. And uh, it, it is a, almost exactly, if not just a little bit over 100 years old. And I felt like I, me being drawn to this place was very much an act of the divine. Because not only does it provide me space to do work, I have an office now. Um, there's a little shed outside my window here that is where my altar is. And I can completely leave the house in within my property and, and go into this little shed and do workings, on, you know, in a private, in a place where, with rural privacy in a way that I know not everyone has the luxury of, but I never thought of it like that, that this, uh, other than recognizing that the house had history, that this house is, is, you want to call it a God or an egregore, but it certainly has a century of energy built up within it. And he probably and, saw your application and was like, yeah, I like him. He, yeah. Send him over. Yeah. Maybe so. Maybe so. Because it was very quick. And in LA it's trying to rent a house. is like, it's a thing. Like we, we saw a handful of houses beforehand. And of course, like 50 applicants in a day, you know, it's crazy. And, um, and, and we have a dog and so that makes it even harder, but for whatever reason, this, this house, I guess they did. Maybe it's all my application. It was like, this guy, this is good. This is good energy to bring in. We can do something with him. I would that like to believe so that. That is so funny. Cause I, I had the same, I had literally the same thing happen to me. I was in a really bad situation years ago and mm -hmm. I was like, yo, I need an apartment like yesterday. Um, yeah. can we expedite, expedite now is <laughs> and i found this apartment in 24 hours signed the lease and moved in and i've been here for like six years and it's like the oldest building in this neighborhood for like ever that's cool So i definitely think it was like it was more available like magically like it can interact as a person and it was like all right come on over here you know yeah have you always been drawn to older things Oh, absolutely. I mean, everyone in my family, I mean, listen, my brother and sister aren't that old, but everyone, I've always been raised, by, I've always been surrounded by people much, much older than me. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm also, I live in Pennsylvania, I, born and raised in Pennsylvania with Gettysburg and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, the energy and Harrisburg, even the energy is so like old like mm -hmm. it's so intense like i don't know if you've ever been to gettysburg but you walk no. in there in the battlefields of gettysburg it's it, it, it's like one of the most bloody wars fought in this country ever you walk into gettysburg there was like fog when i went there and it felt like when i was on this particular hill because there's like a bunch of hills it's like a hilly region and then there's like all these like random like huge like cemetery things everywhere. Um, it just feels like, and I have some pictures. I'll have to send them to you later because yeah, you can feel you you can feel in the pictures like it's like you're in a different place in space and time. Right, right. It's like so intensely like the war was so intense. It's like when you go into those fields, it's like you're not in like 
earth as we know it it's like a weird distorted part of earth in pittsburgh i live in pittsburgh right now Mm -hmm. i love i love pennsylvania dude in pittsburgh go ahead we don't go on you pittsburgh anyone (laughs) well it's uh it's funny uh my the the podcast that is out currently for this week at the time that we're recording this my guest is from pittsburgh as well um i've not been to pittsburgh yet but i my sister went to drexel uh, for graphic design. And I had a buddy who lived in Reading, which is, I guess, outside of Pennsylvania. So I have been there a couple, a handful of times, actually, between those two th- instances. Um, and also I did a, I did a documentary. There's a, a famous YouTuber named McJuggernuggets. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, but that sounds familiar. He, he lives in, I'm sorry, he lives in New Jersey, but it's right on the border of Pennsylvania. Like, I don't know. I forget the region, but it was like the nearest town was Philly to drive into to get gear. So how, you know, it was like maybe an hour or two away. Jersey devil. Yeah. But that, that you're right. There's like a, there's again, especially in older parts of the U S so, so, um, certainly like the South, like I've shot in Atlanta a bunch, you walk into certain areas where buildings have been fortunate enough to not be knocked down or replaced with modern monstrosities, but there's that that collective energy can, you feel it. It's palpable when you walk into an area, especially graveyards and things of that nature. It just, you just feel it. It's like walking into, um, I guess the closest thing I could equate it to is either like a heat vapor or, or, or heavy humidity, but on an energetic level. Pittsburgh was this um, epic steel town back in the day. Steel city, baby, black and yellow. Um, it was this epic steel town, and I think there were like something like a million people living here back in you know nineteen like forty or something. Mm-hmm. And 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 Pittsburgh just like destroy it got destroyed. It was like no one needed steel anymore or whatever, so everybody left, and entire towns became a abandoned are and wow. are still abandoned to this day entire steel mills became abandoned are still abandoned to this day and on top of that we were booming like all this incredibly racist stuff started happening mm. um they moved the people of pittsburgh or the not the people whatever they they got all of the the, the like the black people to move to what we call north side wow. and what they did was um they flourished and they created all this amazing jazz, amazing music. It was like mm-hmm. Pittsburgh earned the nickname the Paris of the United States at the time because really? they were just so incredible. So what these racists did was they destroyed the bridge from downtown to north side. Wow. And then what so that they couldn't, you know, it was like segregation physically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then what they did was they destroyed all of their amazing culinary restaurants and jazz places and all their art places. And they put in a parking lot for oh. the Penguins hockey team. So That's... it's like now the Penguins are kind of like Pittsburgh's pride and joy or whatever. It's like sports and whatever. And they always win the Stanley Cup and whatever. But it's like a symbol for these incredible and there and there were still many amazing jazz musicians and stuff that came out of pittsburgh but it was like just so sad like ghosts in pittsburgh are plenty i believe it and and also you know again to sort of 
circle back to what we were talking about at the top of the episode. There's, I'm I'm not against sports. I in fact I love hockey. It's one of my favorite sports to watch. But to destroy something that's so culturally rich, you know, this tapestry of of different kinds of music and dance and art creation and homogenize it all into a, you know, again, not to, not to take anything away from sports play, but to, to sort of remove it and, and replace it with a thing that's truly designed to just sell merchandise. It's really a bummer. I, I've seen, I saw that in Austin quite a bit. You know, when I moved to Austin, it, it was like the cool city in Texas. And you could walk down the street and on, on, on Sixth Street, which is the most famous sort of area of nightlife. And on any given night, you could see like Zydeco players, blues players, jazz, like country western, like old, old, OG musicians came in all the time. And over a few years, that dissipated. I mean, you can still kind of find it here and there, but um, more and more now, those those old establishments have been either outright replaced or at least refurbished into more of a sort of top 40 type clubs, which is fine. Again, if you like it, that's cool. But it it does lose a little bit of the soul, I think, when cities are so quick to give up their history. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And the Damien Eccles thing you mentioned, like when he said that, I was like, duh, because like being in Pennsylvania, it's like even though these these tragedies kind of like took place or whatever or like mm-hmm. all these people died or entire towns became abandoned and there's like some sort of like emptiness there or i or centralia is another thing in pennsylvania it's this abandoned highway on top of a coal mine that a bunch of people died under and they shut down the whole wow. highway so teenagers came in there and they painted art all and graffiti all over the highway. So it's just like miles of like art, which is super cool. Like in a abandoned forest, this energy of kind of like being surrounded by something that's been there longer than you have, has like been the most, one of the most important things to me creatively and like spiritually. Cause it's like, I see you, like, can I get you anything? Like, am I even right. cool enough to talk to you? Like, that's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that completely. What, how would you describe your style? Like if, when, when you're able to create your own projects, like for those who might not be familiar, who maybe haven't seen some of your art on Twitter, what would you, how would you describe your art style? <clears throat> well, visually, um, Visually, I'm really inspired by like Pendleton Ward, who was the creator mm-hmm. of Adventure Time. But some of the mm-hmm. people listening to this may know him for Midnight Gospel and like J.G. Quintal, who did regular show. And now he's doing uh, the other one close enough, mm-hmm. um, kind of like the style of like it's more simple. We're bringing back rubber hose, but it's kind of like its own thing. Mm-hmm. But as far as like the actual like, you know, short films that I've completed. I did one for Adult Swim. I did a tarot one recently for myself. Um, I've always just been really into... They, it, it definitely... There is definitely a point to it for myself, but I want it to remain open for the viewer. So... Mm. I try to, in that way, I I have a very strong focus as far as my themes and what I want 
to convey as far as the themes, but how the themes are interpreted, I want to be up to the viewer. So I do keep things a little bit abstract. That's very awesome. Yeah, I could see a little bit of that of that midnight gospel in in your art and in the tarot thing that you mentioned. Was that tune tarot? Okay, I've done a lot of tarot things <laughs> <laughs> back in back in like 2017 um, when I was in college and I was an intern. Um, I made the tune tarot um, and printed 250 copies of it by myself by like makeplayingcards.com or something it was like three thousand dollars i took pre-orders so it didn't destroy me but yeah it did drain my bank account to zero and for some reason they sold out in like i mean i did like a holographic version and then i did like a black and white version and uh they sold out i tried to pitch it to llewellyn after to be like look people like it but they weren't interested sadly Mm. but it's all good and then I made a tarot pathworking video where I was basically animating the tarot from Malkuth together, like trying wow. to go up. Yeah. Um, I would really like to do like a final tarot deck one day and be like, okay, this is it, guys. Seriously, this is the last one. I love tarot. I love tarot. And when I the first time I did tarot, my understanding of tarot has come a really long way since doing that. But then again, I'm not really necessarily looking at tarot as kind of like a tool for divination. Mm-hmm. Although I'm looking at it as more of like a tool for like path working or like yeah. trying to understand like, okay, so these are all the ingredients that we use to try to like tell a story or like divinate why are these the ingredients i've always mm-hmm. been more curious by that so like looking at them in specific orders and trying to find patterns i'm really interested in it's very uh it's a very alchemist perspective to look at things the instantly i was just thinking of like salve et coagula in terms oh. of like tearing things apart and seeing why they work and then putting them back together with intention i've, I've it feels like that's uh whether consciously or, or subconsciously is part of your process Oh, that's like my main motivator. For me, divination is like, I don't even know what I would ask. Like, what what is worth asking? It's like whenever I I begin to ask a question, it's like, is that really the question I want to ask? Like, it's too much pressure. What I find, what I enjoy most about tarot is I just ask for a pathway for the day. Uh, You know, often uh, a group of like-minded folks that I meet up with, um, shout out to the 777 Club. We, we've been doing a thing lately where we pull three cards, which a lot of people do. I used to just pull one card, but it will do a, a question, you know, something to the effect of like, where am I or who am I or where, what's my state status? Um, what is to come and what's the result? Just on a daily basis. And no deeper question beyond that. Just guide me through this day, you know, calling down divine energy to, to guide me through the day. Um, for better or for worse, to prepare me. And to me, sometimes that's the only question that's necessary. It would be no different than... Um, do you, you know, do again, that like while you're shuffling? Um, so... Like, how do you do that? In terms of how I how do I pull the cards? Or do the whole process? Like, no, like physically, like, oh, like, what does that look like? Yeah, the process. Like, what what are you doing? Yeah, so I usually do it as part of my greater ritual, you know, do, do the LBRP and middle pillar and things of that nature, any invocations, and then I'll invoke Hiru, 
and draw that energy down. I'll shuffle the deck first. And then I, I invoke Hiru and do the invoking pentagram and draw that energy into it. And I'll, I'll just, without being so overt about it in the back of my mind, I'll just ask for Hiru to guide me. I try to keep the terminology simple because I want to, I don't want to try to, I don't want to try to force divinity into a narrow pathway. I want to leave it open. So just guidance, you know, I don't necessarily repeat it in my head or anything. I just know it's there. And then, and then I, I just, is I Hero basically like, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, is hero basically, uh, Abrahamic, like thoughts? Um, it's like a, it's like an intelligence or an angelic force that, that presides over tarot in the same way that any of the angel, if you use angels or what have you can, can be symbolic of different aspects of life or, um, or, uh, connected to different things, just like you would maybe invoke, say, um, Gabriel of Yassad for dream states and things of that nature. Hiru is one of those. It's, it's. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a represent. You can think of it as an egregore or an intelligence or an angel, or whatever it may be. But that is sort of what presides over the tarot, and so I try to invoke it before using it, and then I just sift through it, and I kind of sift through it gently, and I just close my eyes and I wait till my finger feels heavy. Um, it will usually feel like literally denser, and then I know that's a card, and I'll pull it and I'll I'll put it face down, and sometimes I have to sift through the deck a couple of times until I find the card that feels right. And then I flip them and, and I kind of interpret them. I don't use reversals anymore. That's sort of a relatively new phenomenon on my end, but I just, I figure I always used to look at reversals as more internal, like uh, if you pull the two of swords reversed rather than look at it as the antithesis, I would look at it as internally. I'm struggling between two thoughts as an example. Um, but I, I kind of moved away from that because I felt like if I'm interpreting it in that way and as above, so below, so within, so without, then I don't need to flip a card around. I should look at the card in all of its possible meanings and trust my intuition as to what it's trying to convey to me or what the mirror is showing me, so to speak. Um, and then and then what I, I started doing recently is putting an uh, – I have a, a – traditionally I use the the – the Rider Waite Smith deck, but I've also used the Thoth deck. Um, but I will always pull an angel card from the angel deck, which I just recently got, to sort of say, okay, this is this is the message that the mirrors are showing me, and this is this this angel will be something that I can invoke throughout the day when maybe things get muddied, or unclear, or might be difficult, or whatever it may be. That this is going to be my this is this is my backup, so to speak, you know, to to get through this day. Is that and- adoring? Is that Doreen? It's not Doreen Virtue. It's uh, your angel deck. No, not, she didn't do the angel deck. It's um, it's relatively new. They do. They have two decks. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, they have two decks because they also have a, a demon deck, which my friend got and then immediately thought, mm, this might be a little heavy for me to let these guys in. Uh, it's Travis McHenry. It's, oh it's, yeah. It's beautiful art. It's got sort of like a it's white gray sure. marble. Yeah, 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 exactly. But he also has an angel deck, which I like to use. Yeah, uh, it's kind of got like marbly gray background with gold trim on all the design. It's be- it's a beautiful deck. Smells good, looks good, and I've found, especially when I'm using the Thoth deck, because I I've come to believe uh, and and sort of it's been expressed upon me that 
tarot decks can carry and often do carry the personalities of their creators. And so anytime I do stuff with like, that's even remotely Thelemic, I, I tend to add to it by, by bringing in some, some angelic energy just to keep daddy Crowley in his place, you know, give him a little spank. Cause he can get, he can get a little wily. If you oh my him. God. Oh my mind, God. You know? Don't even get me started. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Jesus. Well, I mean, I also think there's like the idea of him as well. I mean, mm. he, uh, my partner was expressing to me, he said that he wrote about something called uh, Crowleyism, where mm. like there would be different versions of him that are basically projected through the people that read mm. and study his work. Not that they're bad or like not good or whatever, but that, you know, that. Yeah, I mean, as far as spanking and putting in their place, I mean, that kind of seems to connect there. Yeah, I think I think with my thoughts on Crowley is he's a he's obviously brilliant and he's what he the work that he's done has obviously had a, a pretty profound effect on the world of occultism, both good and bad, depending on your point of view. Um, I don't I don't generally judge people of the past who are dead by the morality of the current age. I think that's ridiculous. But I do recognize that he's, he was a pretty damaged individual and uh, there was a lot of negativity there along with the good. And um, for whatever reason, I feel like Thelema, I don't want to speak for all Thelema, but just based on my experience on people who I know who are hardcore Thelemites, they typically hold on to a lot of bad behavior. Even... Yo, where the love at? Yeah, like even potentially like some... Uh, self-damaging or self um self uh what's the term i'm looking for um not constru- uh, um self-destructive behavior it seems like they they like to cling to that and i don't get why i mean i don't know i mean at, at my point in my life i'm looking to get make things easier i think i you should yeah right you should know why i mean you were raised catholics you saw you saw catholics that were like catholic and it was like if you said one wrong thing about the priest, like if some kid said a priest did something to them or whatever, mm. the parent would be like, no, they did not never say that about father or whatever. And so, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, we don't have enough information about him to really like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff you could go on. You could say he was like anti-Semitic or whatever, or that he's almost stabbed someone to death, but um, there's really not enough information for us to really I mean, he's uh, he's pretty much mythological at this point. Yeah, I uh, I I care less about the more salacious rumors about him, but I think it's pretty evident that he was a jerk. He, someone who's not able to maintain friendships for long period of times is probably indicative of their personality. And I mean, again, I can only go on my own very brief experience in magic, but I find that the more I go down this path the more empathetic I find myself and the more um, forgiving and the more tranquility tends to come into my life. And for me, I mean, look, everyone has their own individual goals, but if, if that, if that's not enticing to one um, and if, if people are doing magic to bring or to fortify the, the same senseless drama that, that exists in the mundane world, then I, it kind of feels like a waste of time to me. But again, everyone is different, so they're on their own path. You got to remember, like, 
I mean, your opinion about what magic is has probably changed a lot, right? Like oh, what sure. it is, right? Like, I, I mean, you know, the, for me personally, I feel the same way as you that literally whatever is going on or however I feel or however I'm being pol polarized or whatever the turbulence is around me, uh, it does seem to be like, peace is the, always the answer i mean in some situations you have to stand up for what's right and say stuff if you can but it seems like the, a lot of these things that you know we can almost view as like negative are you know that's still part of nature sure yeah so yeah. i mean i i'm trying to find that within myself with the balances generally i i just like duck a lot of dilemmas are really cool people but it is like a comfort it's there's like a religious part to it for sure yeah, there's a little bit of dogma. And again, to your point, everyone is different. I've, you know, there's cool ones as well. There's less cool ones also. Uh, and it's also, it's also could be just be a, a, where I'm at in my life, you know, uh, especially you know, this the year. Babylon I've... thing. Mm. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say the Babylon thing um, is like an interesting kind of um example of the culmination of everything that we're talking about with the Loma is like uh initially a long time ago ago in what is it what we think is in present day Iran because we found a lot of mm -hmm. ruins there that tell this tale we don't know if it was in Iran but we know people were making art in Iran about um a very powerful queen that ruled for 42 years named mm -hmm. Shami Ramat mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right because I'm not you know you know, okay. I'm not, not Iranian. <laughs> Shami Rama. And then the uh and then uh the Romans called her Samaramas or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it just blows my mind that like people that worship Babylon don't know who Shami Rama or Samiramas is because this was the historical figure that inspired the Bible verse about, you know, the queen of abominations, et cetera, et cetera, which then in turn inspired Crowley's whole liver or whatever discussing Babylon and what those different things in the Bible represent. Right. Now, I think I, I one thing I would love to see more of in, uh, I'll use air quotes on an audio program, the magic community is the exploration of, of historical context behind the mystical beliefs. I think that's, uh, just, I mean, based on my experience being raised Catholic, i I'm sure a lot of the same sentiment exists where people are, there may be a fear that if one in indulges in too much historical context, that some of the magic will be removed. But I don't think that to be the case. I, at least for myself, I found that to be quite the opposite. I find like the more I understand about the times and the region and, and again, context and nuance of that era, the stronger it makes my understanding and appreciation of the mystical aspects associated with it. Uh, they, they, they strengthen over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when like, the image or the idea of the image uh, shape shifts over time through the mm -hmm. game of telephone. It gives you a stronger understanding of like what that overall journey looks like, which is really interesting to me. It's almost like that thing is a person and it's changing as it's growing, you know? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the wonderful thing about magic and the current and why I love calling it a current, right? I heard that term and I just thought that's it. That's the term to use because it does evolve. If you imagine like a river stream, it evolves depending on the the surroundings of the region and what's underneath the water and and all of that will, you know, the same stream can be rocky if it goes through a rocky terrain or it can be peaceful and tranquil. And if that's not a metaphor for magic, then I don't know what is. Um, but, but it does change Absolutely. over time. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the more we understand it, the deeper we can appreciate it. I mean, this figure was essentially associated with the colors white and green and her animal, that her like her uh, royal house or whatever that they made art about, or like her uh, coat of arms kind of equivalent for that culture was like a dove. And she was just like a really like chill person who was just like a queen for 42 years. And now Mm -hmm. it's turned into like she wears red and she murders everything in her path, you know? Yeah, Um, there's there's a a certain metal punk rock gothy infusion into some of these stories that I think is what makes them so uh, interesting and salacious for modern audiences. Absolutely. I wonder what the next Jesus is going to be. I mean, <laughs> Jared, it's Jared Leto. Like the, like the next iteration. Yeah. Who's that? It's Jared Leto. I'm pretty sure. Looks like him. I'm he looking that up. Is that an actor? That play- oh, my God. Is this- <laughs> oh, this is the Joker? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. He, I think he has a cult on some island anyway, so I'm pretty sure it's Jared Leto. He hasn't aged. The dude was like in a TV show in the 90s, and he literally doesn't look like he's aged today. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some some Elizabeth Bathory behavior going on to keep him eternally youthful. Him and Paul Rudd, I don't trust the two of them. Never age. They're vampires. I used to have such a crush on Paul Rudd. Yes, I used to have such a crush on him. Well, he hasn't aged oh in like God, that's so 30 funny years. You say that. <laughs> I've seen My Hot American Summer, the show and the movie. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah he hasn't aged. No, not at all. Now, uh, before we it's go, I want to, I want to hear a little bit about a wicked tale and what that because that's coming. That's a project you're that's coming out soon, correct? Yeah, um, I'm finishing up character animation this week. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> it's like this is like the biggest project I've ever taken on for a client ever in my life. It's it's only act one, so there's two whole acts that are going to be made after this. Um, mm-hmm. There's nine songs, and um, it's kind of, like I said, with the whole Pittsburgh jazz thing, there's a local Pittsburgh uh, collection of jazz members, and there is a producer who's behind all of this, who's helping produce the music, and he's got um, Big Germ that's going to help him with some of the production. He did some Mac Miller stuff, um, Rip, uh, where these songs are like, they're they're jazz songs but there is this interest there's this there is this film that progresses that is um trying to encapsulate the feeling and the idea of you know what the streets of pittsburgh is really like wow that's really amazing actually um this guy the guy who's producing it he is so interesting like he lives in, I mean, I don't know how much I should say and what I should not say because he's that interesting. But like, you know, like the old, like the house he lives in right now used to be like 
the OTO temple or some shit or like oh, the wow. Philomic temple. And like he's like just such an he like is an interesting, slick, jazzy street cat. And so he's he's come up with a lot of the the main like the story, the overarching story of the plot, which is about this person who speaks through jazz music and his environment is jazz music and you know he's just like a normal drug dealer and um through the events of his life realizes that you know being caught up in the streets and uh being part of all these crazy parties and selling drugs and like all of this has been kind of a distraction as his mind opens to mm-hmm. another realm and his best friend who passed away is there for him oh that sounds fascinating i'm su- when, when do you know when that's coming out roughly well i finished up i uh, still got to finish up the character animation it's gonna take me some more time to do comps so i'll probably be done on my end in like two weeks i've been working on it for about two and a half three months mm-hmm. um and then I think he is still, he's like, he's like a, a huge, wait, I, if I was a social butterfly, this guy's like a social mammoth. He'll probably, <laughs> he wants to, he wants to release it in a local theater first mm-hmm. um, and then have like the jazz pl- band play live too. Wow, that'd be so cool. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but after that, I think he might try to, uh, I think his plan is to sell it to a streaming service. I don't know how much I should or shouldn't say about that kind of thing. Well, that's cool. I mean, I think uh, whenever it starts to become widely available, if you would mind sharing, I would love to share that and watch it myself because I think that is sort of that, those kind of stories are the things that art has the ability to tell. And especially if you're talking about this person going through sort of um, extending their consciousness, then the world that animation can allow to open up is so breathtaking and and captivating and um especially with jazz music it's just you know again it's maybe not as mainstream as it once was but there's power and there's history there that can that can come out and express itself and it sounds just like a really fantastic project for people to enjoy it's been transformative for everyone that's worked on it it's turned us all into um i guess like happier people and like more faith we have more faith than we used to in some sense that i don't know how to explain or describe um it's just it's been really powerful for us all to work on so i'll make sure to send it to you yes please do and and let everyone know kind of where they can find you or your work or anything that you want to share in terms of your art because i find it to be incredibly impressive and i'd love for more people to be able to put their eyeballs on it and to gain something from it, especially since you're putting so much magical energy behind each and every frame or composite that you do. Oh, thank you. I'm Wally Might on everything. Wally Might on YouTube, Instagram, uh, Twitter, um, YouTube. I got a bunch of animations up there that if you want to just straight up watch animation, go there. But if you want some more uh, if you want to see me babble, you can go to Twitter. But if you just <laughs> want to look at art, go to Instagram. 
<laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, for Molly, thank you so much. I loved talking with you. I love talking about craft and artistry and, and animation. And you've been such a lovely guest. I really want to just thank you and, and show my appreciation for the time that you've given us today. Oh, you too. And I can't wait to watch your comedy festival take and everything that you do with that. Yes, I will. Uh, I'll let everyone know once it's out. We're filming in mid-September. And so I don't know what the turnaround time between that and it coming out uh, online will be. But the moment it does, I will share it with everyone. And of course, I'll keep you up to date with any other projects that I end up doing. And if I ever hear of need for a compositor, I know who'd reach out to. Yoo-hoo. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank I you so will. much. For I will be there. Awesome. Awesome. I would love to collaborate one day. So thank you once again, Molly, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Make sure to find all of Molly's work at Wally Might on all social platforms. Her YouTube channel is super cool. Uh, and until next time, you know, thank you once again. And maybe when the when um, A Wicked Tell comes out, maybe we'll have you back on and you can talk a little bit more about it once it's released and you can give a little bit more behind the scenes of it. I'd love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All right. Bye, Dave. Bye, everyone. I want to thank Molly once again for coming on the podcast and spending her time with us, sharing, you know, putting the curtain back behind some of her artwork. I, I One of the main focuses of this podcast beyond talking about culture and society is, is really giving an artist the opportunity to talk a little bit about their craft. I believe that having some personal insight as to how their craft is put together helps us not only be informed, but appreciate that art in a more meaningful way once you know sort of how the sausage is made, so to speak. So thank you once again to Molly. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast. I, I definitely enjoyed the conversation, and I think we'll have Molly on again very, very soon. So thank you once again to her. Thank you once again to all of you. I know there's many options when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen to the A Culture Shock podcast. And so until next time, gold rings on you all. Have a safe, safe uh, week. And for those of you in New Orleans and the Louisiana area, evacuate if necessary, and, and may your homes and your communities and yourselves be held safe. Take care.